1: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
2: How do we fix our family doctor crisis? How do we make that happen? Well, it's going to be not one thing, but probably a lot of things that are going to combine to hopefully help us ease this shortage. Now, here's an interesting suggestion, and it has to do with refilling prescriptions, because that was a very big topic last week when that couple from Vancouver Island posted the ad in the paper because the elderly husband could not find a family doctor to get his prescriptions refilled. Well, what if you didn't have to go to a doctor to do that? What if you could just go to the pharmacist? Even if your prescription had run out and you were needing technically a new prescription, if you didn't need a checkup, if you didn't need any additional tests, if there were no complications, what if you just went to the pharmacist and got that prescription? Would that be one of the things that could potentially help ease this shortage? Would family doctors appreciate that? Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Dr. Kevin McLeod, Internal Medicine Specialist at Lionsgate Hospital. Dr. McLeod, thanks for being here.
3: Simi, thanks for having me.
2: Now, I know this was a a very interesting discussion on social media over the weekend. What do you think of this idea?
3: I think it has merit. I think we would have to do it very carefully. Um, You know, refilling a prescription isn't as simple as you know just taking pills from a big bottle and putting them in the little bottle. You you know, you you got to put some thought into it. Is it the right medication? You know, what's that patient's liver function, kidney function? There's a lot of things you want to think about with it. I see it all the time where people are on medications and and for years and years, and I'll, I'll say, well, why are you still on that? And they say, I don't know. They kept refilling it. Um, you know, and that medication was supposed to stop sometimes three or four years ago. So, you know, it's, it's more complicated than just refilling it. But, but the flip side, we're not in a perfect world right now, right? Like not everybody has a family doc. Not everybody can get a 20-minute appointment to really ask about what they're on and if they need X or Y. So we, we need some other options for people. I mean, you, you don't need, you know, the, the young person who's been on birth control for you know, years trying to scramble to get into a walk-in clinic or figure out you know, how she's going to get that birth control renewed. That that just seems silly and a waste of everybody's time. Um, so there's, there's got to be a better way.
2: Are there, like pharmacists already ask you a few, quite a few questions, right, when you're getting a prescription refilled, and they certainly have the knowledge about the medication. Is there a way to empower them to ask a few more questions perhaps about the prescription oh. that you're getting refilled?
3: Absolutely you could do that, right? And and you know, I think pharmacists are very, very skilled at that. You know, a lot of people don't realize this, but naturopaths are renewing medications now. Other other groups are renewing medications. And I I think the pharmacist is very well suited to that. I am a big believer in, you know, really having that family doctor at the center of care. I'm not a family doctor, but I see it's so beneficial to patients. The problem is we don't have enough family doctors doing that. And you know, there's there's some medications that are very dangerous if they suddenly stop, right? I mean, I've I've run into this on the North Shore where there's some family doctors who left their practice for, for multiple reasons. Well, you know, their patients' medications just abruptly stop. And you can't abruptly stop, say, a pain drug or an antidepressant or, you know, a blood pressure pill. Or I've had patients where they couldn't get their blood thinner renewed and they're they're very high risk of having a stroke if they come off of that. You know, so th- those are things that the pharmacist would know. Hey, this is a category of drug; it just it can't abruptly stop. We have to keep this going. You know, and and you bring up that that elderly couple in in Victoria. Um, that, that's a that's a fairly common thing. I mean, most people are not taking an ad out in the newspaper, but it's it's not uncommon to have people who have pretty complex medical histories who don't have really reasonable access to care and bringing a lawn chair and lining up outside of a walk-in clinic, it seems unreasonable to me.
2: Yeah. So what would be the red flags? Like how could we possibly do this so that we have those safety nets in place?
3: I think you've got to have a competent pharmacist um who is actually gonna take some time to ask the questions. It it can't be and we, we all know this and it's kind of the the quiet part I'm gonna say out loud, but there's some pharmacists who are really good, there's some who aren't, just like there's some doctors who are really good and there's some who aren't. You, you know, and you would have to really have tools to to make sure that questions are being asked to really understand what you're renewing. You you can't have a, a pharmacy that renews hundred scripts an hour you know, just pushing people through and and renewing that and collecting some fee that that isn't actually helpful to patients and and could in fact be dangerous. But you know, I I, I see small community pharmacists who have known that patient for 25 years. You know, and and in, in that time span, you know that patient may have seen. 10 different doctors in walk-in clinics, but their pharmacist really knows them. So there's, there's times when it actually makes a lot of sense. It's, it's hard because it's one of those things where one size doesn't fit all.
2: Right.
3: But, but that's a very big challenge for government because you, you can't have, you know, 101 unique little policies for each different pharmacy, right? So, yeah. so it's something that needs a lot of study, but, but really we just got to get everybody in the same room and figure it out. It, it shouldn't be that complicated.
2: This is what I'm wondering, too, is that, yes, this is a great idea, but how many ideas are we going to kind of throw at the wall to see if they stick, if they're going to make a difference here?
3: Absolutely. And, and you know, I mean, I've been trying to put the message out too. It, it. It actually starts before even getting onto the medications. Like, what are we doing as a society that we're needing so many medications? You know, why are we not more active? Why are we all under so much stress? Why are we all eating you know, food that is really bad for us, right? And 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 then we wonder why our our hospitals are filling up and we're using we're using medication more and more. I, I graduated seventeen years ago from from my residency program, and and when I finished, you know, there was all this concern that you know two and a half to three percent of of the Canadian population this is everybody, kids to adults um, had diabetes. Well, well, now it's nine percent. Right. It, wow. It, the, the dramatic, and we don't talk about that because we're very focused on COVID and other things. But, but when I go into the hospital, the, the the number of people who are there from preventable illness is really, really high. Now, it's not their fault. Not victim blaming anybody. But we we have to look at a, at our society and and sort of say, well, what are we doing that's actually leading to people landing on on so many medications in the first place and that's a much harder question for government and it's not really just for government to answer it's for all of us to answer
2: do you get the sense that this is being discussed i know we feel like okay something is going to happen there must be something going on behind the
3: scenes it feels like that but you know i think i think the problem now in you know i'm sure your listeners probably feel a little bit of this too like we seem to go from crisis to crisis to crisis right and And we're we're so busy putting out fires that we're not actually, you know, sort of (laughs) putting in prevention to stop that fire from happening. I was just talking to somebody this morning, and he made a really good analogy. He said, you know, it's like everybody's jumping off a cliff. And we've got all these ambulances and people at the bottom trying to collect all these badly injured people at the bottom of the cliff why the heck are we not building a fence along the edge of the cliff? Like, we seem to be doing the wrong thing. And, and it's a hard thing to change, but, but I think we need to do that.
2: That's so interesting. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning
3: send me anytime. See you later.
2: That's Dr. Kevin McLeod, internal medicine specialist at Lionsgate Hospital, talking about the idea of allowing pharmacists to refill prescriptions, I mean, in certain areas, right? Not just the blanket refill prescriptions, but asking a few questions, making sure there's no attention from a doctor needed here, but if it's a straightforward renewal that this person needs to be on this medication, then do they really need to, you know, try to get to, to a family doctor somehow to get that prescription renewed, or should the Pharmacists be able to do it for them.
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: Every once in a while, Vancouver makes headlines in the international news landscape, and it's not always good. Now, recently there's been an article in the New York Times, this time about Vancouver's safe supply of drugs. Headline: Fentanyl from the Government. Question mark. Yes, it's hard to explain, I think, to a lot of people exactly what's going on here with our overdose crisis, how we got to the point where this is the reality, where we have this toxic drug supply, and many people feel that the only way to manage that is by supplying safe drugs, essentially. But there are critics of that process, too, and there's a lot of that discussion uh, going on. Raji Sohal joins us now for more on that. Good morning, Raji.
4: Hi, Simi. Yeah, and some of these critics come from working within the system. They've worked within the downtown Eastside for a long time. They are doctors. They've seen what's happened over the last many years in B.C. And so they know what's up. And the whole idea behind the safe supply was that Well, we know the street supply was extremely dangerous, laced with toxic components, and people had no way of knowing what was in whatever they were going to buy from somebody, you know, in the middle of the night on the street. So safe supply was supposed to be just that. Safe supply of drugs that have been checked, verified, uh, if taken in the dose provided, should not result in an overdose, but the safe supply program in BC, it It's an experiment, right? Where you'd normally have years and years of study and data collection and analysis. The province didn't have time to do that. The opiate crisis resulted in 2,200 deaths last year in our province. Every time I hear that number, I'm just baffled. I can't believe that many people lost their lives to the opiate crisis. And safe supply is part of this this strategy. It can help people uh, stay alive, basically, because by preventing overdose. But also, in some cases, the hope is that it leads to recovery if it's used with therapy and detox. So just like one part of like an overall strategy. But one of the big issues with critics is this idea of diversion. Uh, That is where a patient goes to a safe supply center, say in the downtown east side. They get their drugs. And they give the excess away to someone else. Who's that someone else? It could be a kid, it could be uh, someone who's vulnerable. But I talked to Annabelle Mead, and she's an addiction doctor with over 20 years of experience in the field in Vancouver. She's worked in downtown Eastside. She's worked on the front lines, outreach, detox centers, you name it. She uh, has done work with St. Paul's and Children's. And she says this diversion issue is a big part of why she is critical of of how we run this safe supply program.
5: The big issue that we have with it is that uh, diversion of these medications is of great concern to many of us so um, what happens is these we know that diversion is occurring our patients tell us that they sometimes give away or sell their prescribed medication um, and continue to use uh, street meds. Um, there's a market for the, the for the divertible medications and they often go to the most vulnerable in our society. So that's people that aren't used to taking opioids, don't have tolerance to it, don't have an opiate use disorder. Uh, and this includes our youth and our children uh, and others that are vulnerable, such as those with um, chronic pain or mental health issues or or, or trauma histories. Uh, we also know that, that the medications are being diverted because the street price of hydromorphone tablets has gone down significantly in the last two years. It, they were selling for around 8 to $10 a tablet and now they can be bought for $0.50 cents to $1. So, so there's um, many reasons that we know it's being diverted. And now in, in recent times, we're seeing an increase in uptake of or we're seeing Um, patients present to our our outpatient clinics at a young age with um, addiction to straight hydromorphone tablets.
2: You know what? None of this surprises me given the things that I've seen and heard too in the system, Raji. And I guess my question with this is what are we doing about pain management? Because that is a huge issue. That is the reason why so many people become addicted to begin with.
4: Oh, well, that's a great question. And that gets to the root of why anybody would end up in a scenario where they were eventually addicted, right? Um, What are people doing for pain management and how can they be provided more resources that are, you know, even not drug related um, earlier? Uh, I think that's such an important question. But, you know, Mead, Dr. Mead, she's worked with children now as young as 13, whom she told me have had severe overdose uh, encounters. And that is just, uh, it's heartbreaking. And I think we didn't you know, the province didn't, couldn't anticipate every single problem that was going to come out of providing safe supply and diversion was one of these issues. And I don't know what's being done about it. But also, Dr. Mead and I talked about this, this term safe supply, even like it's problematic, it's misleading, and it doesn't get to how uh, what we're dealing with is itself a drug that is potentially very dangerous. Why are we calling it safe supply? Here she is talking about it.
5: So they're kind of um, branded and touted as being safe. You know, we're all using the term safe supply. The preferred terms, I should say, are things like um, um, pharmaceutical alternative um, uh, medications uh, or risk mitigation medications, but it's much easier and quicker to say safe supply, and that's what we're seeing a lot in the media now because it immediately gives that idea to people that, oh, this is a safe medication. It's been prescribed by a doctor. It's made by a pharmaceutical company. We know exactly what the dose is, and that is correct, but it is called safe, so it is not harmful for me to take. You know, many young people would think, oh, there's no way I'm going to touch um, street heroin or street fentanyl, but this is safe, so, um, so I will take this as a, as a recreational substance. Now, the reason it's not actually safe is that, number one, if you're not tolerant to, the, um, to opioids, then you can still overdose on that. These medications are very strong. Hydromorphone tablets that we're using are 8 milligrams. That's the same as 40 milligrams of morphine. So for someone that's not used to having it, it is very strong. And particularly if you combine it with other substances, such as alcohol or benzodiazepines, there is a very strong risk of accidental overdose. The other reason that they're not safe is that um, when they're used for for any length of time or become regular use, then we know that can quickly lead to tolerance, to loss of control over the use and often progression to then seeking um, more illicit substances. So all of this means that uh, people are, are at risk of developing an opiate use disorder. We know in society that if um, access to a drug or a medication is increased, if cost is reduced, um, then um, uptake is more and we see more problems with addiction.
2: Okay, so they're saying more problems here. Well, then what is the solution, Raji? You mentioned off the beginning there that it's so difficult because we don't have the time. That's the problem. We don't have the time to research what is the absolute right thing to do.
4: Yeah, and we our province had to act really quickly. The point she makes there about act, you increase access to a medication and then uh, people take it more. Um, that has been studied in the past with other medications. Um, But even just calling, referring to safe supply as a medication might change people's perception in the first place. Um, I don't know if the province would walk back on that, but I I would like to see that change because there's a a perception around this term, right, safe supply, that um, it's just a helpful tool. But there's some some issues there.
2: Also, I feel like we get guilty of groupthink, right? It becomes yes, the idea yes. that this is the answer, this is the answer. And all of a sudden we're doing it. But what about these other things that in the beginning we were saying had to be done in conjunction with, are we still doing those things?
4: And are we doing them as much as we need to? I still hear about patients not being able to get a bed in a detox center. These exactly. are people who say they want to get help and there's no
2: help for them there. So many questions. All right, Raji, thank you very much for that. Thanks, Simi.
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: Well, let's talk about what was going on this weekend. We've heard about the gang shooting, the targeted shooting uh, that they're dealing with in Burnaby. Well, what happened in Vancouver? Well, multiple people sent to hospital Saturday night. A man allegedly attacked them with a machete. A very dangerous situation. So what happened here? Joining us now for more on this is Constable Tanya Visitin, who's a media relations officer for the Vancouver Police Department. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Timmy. Thanks for having me. This sounded like an eventful weekend. Would would you classify this as being out of the ordinary, or was this another Saturday night in downtown?
6: No, I'd say definitely out of the ordinary. Um, it's it's rare. It's rare that this um, kind of interactions happens with police. However, we have been seen um, you know, since April, there have been about four police involved shootings. So this is um, something that we are dealing with a, a lot more, these very violent situations.
2: yeah, is that a concern and and what's being done to address that? Is there something that you look at internally to say, why are we having so many police involved shootings?
6: So, yeah, it's definitely a concern. You know, this is, um, you know, discharging our firearm. That's something that we train for, we prepare for. We hope to never have to ever do that, but we are prepared to. And it, um, you know, lately we have been in these situations. The last four shootings, they've involved our officers facing either a threat to their lives or to a member of the public. So, um, in this case, in all these cases, shootings were necessary to prevent people or members of the public or police officers from being seriously injured or dead.
2: Okay, so what happened in this case? Yeah, so on
6: um, Saturday night, late Saturday night, um, around 10 p.m., our officers were called by uh, Vancouver Fire Rescue Services after a man had set his suite on fire inside a rooming house near Granville and Smythe. Um the man then subsequently attacked and stabbed four people while inside the building. So when our officers arrived, they were confronted by the suspect who was still uh, armed with a weapon. Um, shots were then fired by our police officers and the suspect was injured. So um, the suspect um, was taken to hospital. He will recover, but um, they are serious injuries, and those four uh, victims will also be recovering. However, they'll have life-altering injuries, but, um, you know, by the grace of God, they they will live, so thankfully.
2: Mm -hmm. Okay, so was there any way that this suspect was known to police?
6: Uh, Yeah, he's definitely had some uh, police interaction for sure in the past. Um, uh, We do anticipate charges coming sometime either today or, or earlier this week. So that's something that we will definitely be updating the public on.
2: Okay, so does this does this show us that maybe something different needs to be done here? This was clearly, as you point out, an unusual situation. But we seem to be having a lot of unusual situations
6: definitely i mean we've been uh speaking about this for a while when it uh, it all started with our stranger assaults we were seeing increases of uh, of stranger assaults um end of last year and we were noticing you know there's more um, there's a lot of factors that attribute to this. This is mental health. This is drug addiction. This is homelessness. Um, you know, we've long been advocating for more wraparound services here, more safe supply. So there, there's a lot of factors here. Putting somebody in jail, we know that's not that's not uh, what's going to solve all of this. There's deeper issues here. Um, different levels of government need to get involved, and that's something we've been saying for a while now.
2: Is this could it, could this have been potentially a situation, constable, where having those add-on services? services? services would have benefited the situation?
6: I mean, it's hard to say, I can't can't speculate, but um, you know, having more support, more wraparound services for people who who need them, for the vulnerable in our community, uh, definitely is a a step in the right direction.
2: Okay, so you expect charges will be forthcoming in this case?
6: Yes, um, within the next day or so.
2: All right, well, thank you so much for the update this morning.
6: Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me.
2: That is Constable Tanya Visitine, who's the media relations officer for the Vancouver Police Department, talking about the situation over the weekend. Multiple people sent to hospital, as you heard her describe. there, after a man allegedly attacked them with a machete. Yes, the police have been advocating for this. Many people have the idea that we need more support services, so more mental health Help for calls that come in, uh, particularly in this Vancouver area, might have helped in this situation. They said this person was known to police. And yes, there will be charges forthcoming. And thank goodness the four victims are going to be okay. But uh, you, they are talking about potentially life altering injuries for some of them. So there will be updates on that case. And just another example of kind of things. You know, the stranger assaults that the constable was talking about, too. We've discussed those a lot in the last couple of months. Uh, people are just wondering what is going on out there. Why are we seeing these kind of high profile, very strange cases? And this was also, unfortunately, another incident of the Vancouver police discharging firearms, too. So the Independent Investigations Office will also be investigating this latest case, too.
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
2: We always should be concerned and know what is going on with our phones, with our computers. You want to know if you are being spied on. Remember last week we were talking about the Tim Hortons app, uh, that there was a class action lawsuit because of all the information the Tim Hortons app was like scraping from you and your phone. And so, yeah, if that's happening, you want to know. Well, the RCMP has also revealed its use of tools that covertly Obtain data from devices like phones and computers. According to the RCMP, they've gotten warrants to use those tools that collect things like text messages and emails and can remotely even turn on cameras and microphones. And they say they've done this in about 10 different investigations. Well, as a result of that revelation, the House of Commons Ethics and Privacy Committee has called for a summer study. And that committee actually will begin exploring the RCMP's use of spyware today. Joining us now to talk about this is David Fraser, a privacy lawyer and partner at McInnes Cooper. David, thank you for joining us.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Happy to.
2: So what, can you describe to us what it is that the RCMP was doing and why it was potentially problematic?
1: Well, we don't yet have all the details, but certainly it seems that the RCMP has been using What you and I would consider, and most people would consider to be spyware, uh, to infiltrate the telephones, the smartphones and computers of suspects uh, in order to obtain information. And so you you mentioned in order to get the text messages and and emails, uh, but even more troubling is the possibility, and it seems that they have the capability to, for example, turn on the microphone on the camera of the device. And so essentially, it's as though an RCMP officer with an invisibility cloak is sitting on your living room sofa or sitting on your bedside table. These phones contain the most intimate, the most detailed information about our intimate lives. Uh, And this is perhaps the most intrusive surveillance technology that we have ever seen at least acknowledged by the RCMP to be used. And it is unclear that they went through any sort of checks and balances process in order to, to determine whether it's appropriate to deploy this sort of technology in connection with investigations. Oh, now, I've always done it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and usually the the checks and balances that we have is that, is that the police have to go and get a warrant, go and get a court order from a judge. And a judge determines that uh, the, the privacy interest in of the individual is outweighed by the investigative necessity on the part of the the police and and usually when you're dealing with completely routine sorts of orders using well-known technology we I think we can take a lot of comfort in that Uh, but when it's something that's brand spanking new that turns surveillance up to 11 uh, I think we need more of a, a consultation now the RCMP will say, "Well, we can't publicly announce that we're doing this because then people will be able to put in place circumvention technologies, and we'll, and it will be undermined." And I'm and I'm absolutely sympathetic to that. And I also think that there are going to be some cases where the most intrusive mat- uh, techniques may be appropriate, but there should be a mechanism to make sure that that this is being done appropriately. So, for example. The police can get a warrant to search your house if they believe you've you've committed a crime and there's evidence in there. And they just have to go to a justice of the peace. And in many provinces in Canada, that justice of the peace isn't a, isn't, doesn't even need to have extensive legal training. They don't need a law degree or, or to be a lawyer. In my view, something like this, something this intrusive, should have to go to a superior court judge. Uh, and there should be methods to review in great detail what exactly they're doing, how they're doing it, for how long, who's going to be targeted. So my phone goes with me wherever I go. And so it's not just monitoring me. It's monitoring everybody I'm interacting with um, and, and anybody right. I'm having a conversation with. I could leave it on a table and go to the bathroom in a restaurant and it's going to pick up the, the conversation of, of everybody. And if they get a blanket warrant that says, hey, you can install this and turn it on for 30 days, that's potentially capturing a lot of collateral information.
2: Do we not have an expectation of, of privacy? And it just strikes me as well, David, isn't this just so typical of how we deal with technology? It gets far ahead of us, and then we try to rein it back in?
1: Certainly, you could see this as being part of that larger theme. And and I think that's one of the things that the RCMP counts on, is that, hey, this is a new technique that we want to use, and we're, we're going to go and use it. And they say that, oh, well, we're going dark we have less access to evidence because more and more smartphones are encrypted by default, and, and there's encrypted messaging and, and things like that. Whereas they're, they're swimming in data; they've never had access to so much uh, to so much information, and that's completely related to related to technology. But at the end of the day, we, we can't. This comes down to an important balancing between law enforcement interest and the public interest in privacy. And you can't ever count on the police to strike that balance appropriately because they're always looking at it from the law enforcement point of view. So I I applaud the ethics, the ethics committee for undertaking this study. Uh, I hope that they will get to the bottom of this and more information will come out, although I'm not optimistic that the RCMP will be particularly forthcoming, because they they seldom are, uh, and that the committee will recommend checks and balances and processes in order to make sure that there is, in fact, a proper consideration of where the balance appropriately should be, Mm -hmm. um, because there are other interests at stake beyond what law enforcement wants to do.
2: As a privacy lawyer, David, where would you recommend those checks and balances appropriately be?
1: Well, I think that there needs to be certainly. I appreciate the need for law enforcement secrecy in a whole bunch of circumstances. If they were to unveil the blueprints of all of this, it could easily be undermined. So, I'm sympathetic to that. So, so there should be an independent review of any new investigative technology that's being deployed uh, that is subject to confidentiality and secrecy, uh, but that has the full conversation that needs to take place and then recommends the appropriate checks and checks and balances that need to be, that need to be put in place in order to, to protect the, the public interest. There's also the concern that, that you know, if they're able to externally exploit my phone Or your phone. I use an Android, you probably use an iPhone. That means that there's a vulnerability in the Android system or the iPhone system that not only uh, are they exploiting, but bad guys can exploit. And frankly, I think that there's an ethical obligation on their part uh, to notify those phone manufacturers because the, the vulnerability that they're taking advantage of is a vulnerability that everybody else is exposed to.
2: Is this the first step? Do you think in putting some of those checks and balances in place? Like, do you have high hopes for this parliamentary committee review?
1: I, I have hopes, but I can't say that I have high hopes in these uh, in these circumstances. I think it's an important thing. Yes, I think it's an important conversation to to have. And and I, as I said, I applaud them for for having this uh, having this important study and particularly taking time out of their summer to do so.
2: All right. Well, David, thank you so much for your time on this.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. You take care.
2: You too. David Fraser, privacy lawyer and partner McKenna McInnes Cooper, talking about the fact that, yeah, it is unusual for a parliamentary committee to start work in the middle of summer, which is what's happening. It's the House of Commons Ethics and Privacy Committee doing a summer study after the RCMP revealed that they use, in 10 different investigations... Tools that covertly obtain data from devices like cell phones and computers. What are the rules around that? How do we know what they're using it for? What are they doing with the collateral collected information? Good questions. Let's see if this committee can get to the bottom of that.